the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by the debut of Rotographs contributor Mike Petriello. And today we'll be discussing the Diamondbacks' middle infield situation and all things Dodgers. And Mike, you actually write for a blog, and I believe it's your own blog. It's Mike Sosha's Tragic Illness. And so this is your own blog. I don't, I don't think anybody else writes for it, right? It is my own blog because who else would write for a blog with that kind of title? <laughs> I would be happy to write for a blog with that kind of title. The more exotic, the better. And I was reading that apparently it was a Simpsons joke. And we were just talking about the fact that I don't actually watch Breaking Bad. The Simpsons is another show that, yeah, I've seen an episode here and there, but I never watch that show regularly. And I feel like I, I missed out. Did you grow up in like South America or something? <laughs> I grew up under a bubble. What can I say? <laughs> But also, I'm curious, because you live in New York City. Did you grow up in L.A.? I mean, why why a Dodgers blog? No, it's uh, it's a silly story, and I, I get asked that question a lot. I'm actually from the Jersey Shore. Yeah, I'm, I'm from the Jersey Shore. I'm not an L.A. native. Uh, Even more short, strange? Yeah. The, the short version is that uh, when I was a kid in the 80s, growing up, the Yankees were just unwatchably terrible. It was the Alvaro Espinosa and uh, Tim Leary years. Um, so when I, I was a baseball fan, but I didn't know the team. And, uh, when I was like six years old and seven years old and eight years old, you play T-ball and you get assigned randomly to a team, which means they just give you a, a screen printed shirt that could say any team name on it. And I just happened to keep getting assigned to the Dodgers every year. <laughs> uh, and then in 1988, you know, Kirk Gibson hits the home run in the world series and, uh, they win the world series and I'm a seven year old and seven year olds are idiots. And I'm like, I'm on the Dodgers. They're and so I started following them ever since then. That is really a funny story because I played Little League, and yeah, we were always assigned random teams, and I've never heard of somebody becoming a fan of the real-life team because that's the team that you played for in Little League. That's kind of funny. Uh, yeah, you know, it's led to a lot of late nights ever since. Yeah, and so are you telling me that you didn't become a fan of the Mets because they were such a great, fantastic franchise back in the day, right? Yeah, no, I have absolutely no idea why I didn't catch on to the Mets. <laughs> Probably I didn't. I don't think I watched them very much because my grandfather was a Yankee fan, so that's the team I would watch, but I just didn't like them at all. <laughs> all right, well, let's start things off with the most interesting player alive today, and I guess this so happened to be a coincidence because it's none other than Clayton Kershaw. So he is potentially going to be the first qualified starter since Roger Clemens in 2005 to finish the season with a sub-2 ERA, and that's pretty, pretty crazy. And, damn, that's really valuable in fantasy leagues to have 230 innings with a 188 ERA and a whip under one. He is really, really, really good. It's actually going to be uh, the third consecutive year that he's going to lead the majors in ERA, um, which is really, really good. He's going to, yeah, like you said, get it under two for the first time. And, um, you know, I think not only is it going to be basically the unanimous Cy Young, he might get some MVP ballot support. Uh, I don't think he'll beat out McCutcheon, but it's not hard to see him getting top three in the MVP as well. Yeah, I would think so as well. And we talked about Kershaw 
on the podcast uh, a while ago, and we were trying to figure out, and as a Dodgers fan, as a Dodgers blogger, maybe you could help us out because you probably watch a lot more starts than I have. How does he continue to maintain such a low BABIP? Because if you look at his batted ball profile, his pop-up rate, usually a bit above the league average, but overall not that high. He's a slight ground ball pitcher, league average. This year, his line drive rate is actually above the league average. So if you look at his batted ball profile, you wouldn't think it lends itself to preventing hits on balls in play. But here he is, a career 270 BABIP, this year only a 250. What does he do that makes it so hard for batters to get hits? You know, some of the guys just have that skill, right? Like, I don't think this is the first year that he is kind of under the league average. No, um, it's know, been yeah. like every year since 2008, he's been yeah. 275 or below. Exactly. I mean, and, and, you know, the obvious answer is that even if he's not striking guys out, he is making it so that they cannot get good contact on the ball. You know, like they're they're making contact, but it's not going that hard or that far. And I think that just goes to show you how great of a pitcher he is, where even if he's not striking you out, you're still not doing much off of him. Now, I, ha- I have heard that there is a bit of deception in his delivery. Yeah, he's got this weird, like, it's almost a hitch. Like, it's not something you would teach, right? If you look at it, where he kind of, it almost like stops midway real quick and then brings it back up again. Um, it, it's odd, and it always makes me think he's going to, like, blot his knee. Uh, but it works for him, and certainly you wouldn't want to change it at this point. I mean, it's the hitch, it's the stuff, it's the command, it's the control, it's, it's everything. And you look at his progression when he first came up since 2008. You know, he was throwing 100 pitches in five innings, and he had a, a kind of a high walk rate. And he thought if he didn't get that fixed, he'd be a good pitcher, but never a great one. And now he's throwing eight innings and not walking anybody like every other time out. He is, he's really made that progression from a good pitcher into potentially an all-time great one. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the questions I'm asking, it makes it sound like I've never watched the guy pitch. Obviously, I have, and I can see the potential deception in that delivery. But again, you go back to his batted ball profile And wouldn't you think that if he does have some deception in his delivery that prevents hits on balls in play, wouldn't you think his line drive rate would also be lower than the league average? If you have deception making it hard for batters to get hits, that would mean that it would be hard for batters to square up on the ball and hit line drives, but it's not showing up there. So it just confuses me. What is he doing that is causing it to be so hard for batters to get hits off of him? And it it sounds like it's one of those things that it's just, I don't know. You know, part of it is like, the the line drive percentages can be kind of subjective based on who is scoring them. Like I think they're close, but it's hard to put you know absolute certainty into them. Just like with with WAR, right? You could say oh a seven WAR guy is better than a six WAR guy, but you wouldn't go down to like six point five is better than six point four because it's not that precise. And that's a little bit how I feel about the line drive rates because I think they're close, but you know a different my line drive might be your like you know hard hit pop up. Yeah, I mean he's one of those guys who's basically outperforms his ERA estimators. Every single season. So obviously, nearly 1,200 innings into his career, we, we're well beyond the point where we could say, oh, he's just been lucky. Obviously, he does things that the ERA estimators aren't capturing, and it would be really cool if somebody smarter than me can look into it and try to figure it out and then incorporate that into those formulas. Because he's clearly doing things that we can't really tell based on you know, what I'm looking at right now, the batted ball distribution and, and whatever else we look at. And I think it would make these ERA estimators a lot more accurate and our analysis of pitchers and projections a lot more accurate. Because, for example, steamer rest of season projections. Obviously, it's a tiny sample size, but this is pretty much going to be what the projection is going to be next year. Steamer is at 314 ERA. 
Zips at 247. That's an enormous difference. Zips is probably taking into account a lot less regression than Steamer is, and Steamer is basically looking at ERA estimators, which is similar to how my projection system works. Um, I mean, the more that we can understand what guys like Kershaw are doing to outperform these ERA estimators, the better these projection systems are going to do, and the better we're going to understand how pitchers you know, prevent hits on balls and play and whatever else they do. And you know what's going to happen is one of these years he's going to have a little bit of a regression in his bat bit, but he's not going to be pitching appreciably worse any other way, but his ERA will suddenly shoot up like, you know, 0.6 of a run, and people are going to be like, what's wrong with Kershaw? What's wrong with Kershaw? And it won't really be anything, probably. It's just, you know, one of these years, a lot of it is luck. One of these years it's going to bounce back. He's still going to be outstanding, but am I expecting him to have a, a 1.88 ERA next year? Uh, probably not. Yeah, and it happened to Matt Cain this year. I mean, he's basically the same thing as Kershaw. Every single year, a low BABIP, a low home run per fly ball ratio. And every year, you question, what is he doing? How is he doing it? I don't understand. And, well, it all fell apart for him this year. I mean, obviously, he's been a lot better since his first half. But still, his ERAs remains well above what he's done in the past. So... Yeah, and it's funny because now one of Kershaw's teammates is Ricky Nolasco, who's notorious for the exact opposite thing, right? And now he is pitching really, really well this year. Yeah, let's talk about Ricky Nolasco because, I mean, he's he was even good also when he was still on the Marlins this year. His ERA was uh, 3.85, which was better than he's been in every single season basically previously except 2008. He's been even better with the Dodgers with a 3.14 ERA, although... Yeah, it was, it was 207 up until about a week ago. Yeah, I mean, his peripherals generally were about the same, about the same Sierra and XFIP, so it's not like he's pitched any better in Los Angeles, he's just had better luck. Uh, but you wonder, I mean, it's, it's a good sign that Nolasco's strikeout percentage has rebounded, but other than that, he's pretty much the same pitcher as he's always been, just without the bad luck. So... Well, I don't know if it's just luck, though, right? Because, I mean, if you look at the ERA, it's very similar, but he was actually killing it up until his last two starts, he got blown up both times. Um, and, you know, maybe that is regression. I think he, he was very clear, like, the first time he just did not have his curveball working, so he knew he was going to get killed. Um, but I think it's, you know, people think that when he got traded to the Dodgers, he suddenly got better. And like you said, it's not really true. But on the other hand, I think that he was a little bit underrated with the Marlins because he had a crappy record and no one was paying attention to the Marlins this year. Like he started doing better uh, last year. And really, over the last calendar year, he's been one of the top 30, 35 starters in baseball. And that's that's kind of tough to think about for a guy like Ricky Nolasco, but the stats really bear it out. Yeah, and he's a tough guy to crack because he was one of the poster boys for the ERA or Sierra XFIP underperformers. Every year, for the most part, he would post very good skills and he'd have an inflated BABIP or a home number fly or, or a low strand rate. And so you can never be sure if he would actually post an ERA below four that matched up with his skills. Suddenly now he's doing it for only the second time after that really good 2008 season. And, and you kind of have to be nervous. Did, did he turn things around? Did he suddenly learn how to strand runners? I don't know. I mean, do you think that he's back in the conversation of being of having value in a 12-team mixed league uh, next year? Is is he a guy that you would draft and think of as anything more than a spot starter? Well, it's it's the one thing I do like about him in that sense is that there are some things you can look at as being real tangible changes, not just like throwing your hands up and going, oh, he looks better. Like he's thrown his slider more than ever this year. Um, you know, you know, Cyrus did a piece where he thought that he changed his fastball approach somewhat. I think Sullivan did a piece where maybe he changed his release point a little bit. You know, it's so all these things kind of coming together that there are some 
indications that he might actually be doing things better. Um, and then, of course, the last two weeks, he's been horrible. Uh, you know, so I, honestly, I think he's a free agent this year, and I think that he is probably the number one choice for a guy who's going to get a contract that everybody hates. If somebody's going to go give him four years and $65 million or whatever, we're all going to hate it. Uh, but, you know, as far as fantasy goes, I, I would consider him more than a spot starter. I mean, he's not going to be, you know, a, a Darvish striking out 12 guys per night or anything. But if he can keep, uh, you know, keep keep the long ball off and, you know, get – seven strikeouts per nine or something like that if he's on a decent team like the Dodgers that can give him run support for wins then you know that's definitely someone I would I would draft as a back-end starter yeah I guess it really depends on where he ends up because if he ends up in a pitcher's park with a a good defense on a good team that's going to really help him because for most of his career he suffered from a, a high BABIP and and this year for the first or for the second time it's sub 300 and that's allowed him to get his ERA basically right in range with his ERA estimators. And so we don't have to complain about him having Dave Bush and Javier Vasquez syndrome for a change. Yeah, exactly right. And then, you know, you hear about some of the teams looking for pitching this year. If he ends up in San Francisco, well, okay, great. Maybe that's a type of guy. If he ends up in Toronto, then maybe that's someone I want to stay away from. All right, let's move along to, uh, we're going to kind of take a break from talking about the Dodgers for a little bit. I want to talk about Chris Owings and the Diamondbacks middle infield situation because obviously the Diamondbacks are out of it and Chris Owings might be part of their future. And so they're giving him a shot to pretty much play every day. And he's been playing second base and shortstop. So first question is, what can we expect from Chris Owings? Because, I mean, no home runs right now, two steals, he's betting 300. Is he a guy in the last week of a season, if you need middle infield help, that it's worth picking him up? Well, I think if you're talking about this season and, you know, it's September 22nd or whatever, and you're still looking for middle infield help, then yeah. I mean, because that means you're probably in a desperate situation. Um, I, I can't imagine there's anybody else on the wire who's going to help you a whole lot more than he is, even though he's probably not going to help you a lot. I mean, I don't see him as a future superstar. I think he's a, a good, solid player. You know, in fantasy terms, he can have a, a little bit of pop, a little bit of steals. And from a shortstop, that's not terrible, but it's probably not someone I'd want as my shortstop one. You know, maybe a, maybe a backup, or if you're in a large NL-only league, then maybe he does have to be your shortstop one, but a good player, not not a superstar. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue is is that he's apparently allergic to taking a walk. Uh, I mean, his highest minor league rate was 5.1%, which is absolutely pathetic. So he's basically destined to be a bottom-of-the-order hitter, and that's going to affect all of his counting stats and, and really limits his offensive upside. And he doesn't make great contact considering his – uh, power seems pretty average-ish, but uh, I mean, he has some speed as well, so maybe he's one of those guys who over a full season, 10 home runs, 15 steals, which actually has some decent value. But Yeah, for a shortstop, I mean, it's that's not great, but it's it's worth having if you're in the right kind of league. I mean, if you're in a 8 or 10 team mixed league, then, yeah. you know, probably not, but if you're yeah. in a deep league, an animal-only league, like, yeah, but really, the, the thing for him is about opportunity, you know, like, does D.D. Gregorius get the job again next year, or does, uh, do they move Aaron Hill? I mean, probably not, and, and move Owings a second, or do they trade Owings? I mean, it's it's a big question mark for him, because you don't know if he's going to be playing or not. Yeah, now, the domino effect, and how it also impacts my own fantasy team, is that yesterday, he got his first start at second base. Now, as we know, Aaron Hill is the Diamondback starting second baseman, so Aaron Hill was on the bench. I own Aaron Hill in my home league, which I'm still fighting to win. Um, so I'm wondering if you think Owings is going to get any more starts at second base, 
And because I've been considering, do I drop Aaron Hill and pick up somebody else, maybe even Chris Owings, because I can't afford for a hitter who only plays, you know, half the games next week because the team is out of it and wants to play a prospect instead. I mean, I wouldn't drop Hill. I would. I do think that they'll probably give Owings another shot there, but I can't imagine it's Aaron Hill is going to be okay with sitting out half the games. You know, like a game or two, fine. But I do think he's going to want to play. I know there's probably only six games left, but he's probably, you know, not going to want to sit out the last week of the season. Yeah, and also the thing is that Owings has started every other game at shortstop, and Didi Gregorius, after a, a really good start when he was called up, especially in the power department, He's basically done nothing since, and he owns a 310 Woba. He is useless, in my opinion. I mean, he, it's like it's one thing to be a light-hitting shortstop, but when I saw the other day that he had zero stolen bases this year, I, that just blew me away, you know, because I didn't expect, you know, dozens, but like zero from a guy who's not offering really much else. I, that, that was shocking to me. Hey, he's like a Danny Echevarria, Echevarria, a guy who offers nothing, or Donovan Solano, or the you can name a lot of Marlins. <laughs> As, as players are offering nothing to fantasy owners. I really got a kick out of reading the weekly uh, Keith Law chats in the beginning of the season when Gregorius had a bat up of like 400. Yeah. And they're all like, all right, there you see, you're, you're ready to uh, admit that you were wrong about Gregorius now? And he's like, nope. And then he kept saying that, and then Gregorius just cratered after that. Yeah. I mean, the odd thing about Gregorius is I thought he was supposed to be a really good fielder, but his UZR is 150 is actually negative. So he's not contributing with the bat or defensively. No. I mean, the one thing he has going for him is that they made that trade to get him, and then Kevin Towers, you know, called him the next Derek Jeter, or maybe not those exact words, but he used Jeter's name in, in regards oh, maybe to Maybe he's so. not supposed to be good defensively. And <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. kind of ignoring the defense. Well, maybe that. But, you know, <laughs> if, the, if the general manager likes you that much, then, you know, maybe that's uh, something that he's got a card to play to get more playing time. Or he's just deluded. Or, or that. <laughs> All right, so basically... You think I'm good with Aaron Hill. You figure that Chris Owings is probably going to play shortstop the rest of the way. Gregorius is out of a job. And I'm sure at this point, no fantasy owners are counting on Didi Gregorius to be good with. And if they are, they're not still playing at this point in the season. Yes, this is probably true. All right, let's take a Twitter question from my friend who loves to tell us how good the podcast is, which I completely agree with. This is the best podcast ever created. And it's from Motor City 42, and he wants to know about Jacoby Ellsbury, and he asks, what is his likely production with that foot? And that foot is a, compre- uh, a compression fracture in the, in the right foot. He's been out since September 5th, and manager John Farrell recently said that he's optimistic that Ellsbury can return to the lineup on Wednesday. Now, obviously, if you're in a weekly league, there's no way you can start Ellsbury this week because... He's coming back in the middle of the week, and you can't afford to only get somebody who, and it, you know, the most he can do is basically play half the week. But in a daily league where you can first activate him when he returns to the lineup, is he even worth keeping on your team anymore? Do you expect anything from him upon his return? I can't imagine. I mean, he's coming back on Wednesday, and then so that's, what, four more games left? I mean, I don't know what he's going to add. Then and I can't imagine that they are testing him too much by having him, you know, run and, and try for stolen bases, especially since the division is wrapped up for them. So I, I don't have high hopes for him. I mean, as far as like the Red Sox go, I think you know he'll be useful to them in the playoffs. But for Tennessee owners in the last 0.1 percent of the season, I don't expect it. Yeah, and even if he 
comes back and he plays every day, just given that foot injury, do you really expect him to be stealing bases? And if he's not stealing bases, then he's pretty much useless. Yeah, it's. I mean, if you have literally no other options and the mild upside he can give you is fine, but I just if you're hanging your hat on that, I think you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, this is very true. All right, let's talk about the man that always seems to be atop the Fangraft search for players, and for good reason, because he set the world on fire and has the personality to match, and that's Yasiel Puig. And we've talked about him enough on the podcast, but we have yet to have a Dodgers expert on the podcast to give us his thoughts. And now you have joined us. So I'm really curious what you think and what Dodgers land thinks, because obviously he's been, uh, at least in the batter's box, he's been a lot better than anybody could have ever hoped for. A 408 Woba, and he's he's pretty much been really good every single month. I mean, his slumps haven't lasted long, and he's still basically contributed value everywhere. What is this guy's upside? What do you expect from him next year? Is, is this like a 30-20 guy next year? How early do you draft him? Basically, give me the full rundown on your thoughts on Yasiel Puig. I would say Yasiel Puig is uh, obviously, like you said, way more than any of us could have expected. Um He's actually, I worried that he would come up and destroy the ball and then pitchers would figure him out because he just can't hit or lay off the low and away breaking ball. Um, and that happened for a couple weeks where they started doing that, and that was part of his slump. Um, but, he, you know, he actually learned uh, to lay off of it somewhat, which is an amazing sign for him. I mean, he's just, he's a physical freak. He does it all. I mean, he hits the ball harder than anybody. He throws the ball harder than anybody. Um, really, the, the main concern I have with him is that he plays harder than everybody, and usually that's a good thing. But he keeps getting banged up. I mean, he ran into the wall in Denver, and that kind of ruined part of his June. Uh, and he, you know, slid hard on his face uh, another game that knocked him out for a couple of days. He keeps getting, he's like a sharper almost. Like, you love that the guy plays hard, but I'm just so worried that he's going to end up knocking himself out for six months and losing <laughs> your season. Uh, you know, as far as what do I expect from him next year, I think, you know, it's, it's, Maybe not out of bounds to say he's a first-round pick. I mean, you look at what he can do. We do really draft I, I mean, I can understand saying it's not out of bounds to think he can finish the season earning first-round value, but would you really draft him that early? I think his name value, I mean, you look at him, people who maybe don't watch him every day and they just know the name, they uh, they just look at that name and they're like, I have to have that. Like, I, I wouldn't say right now that he's better than Andrew McCutcheon, right? But if you ask the average person, Andrew McCutcheon or Yasiel Puig, they get way more excited about Puig. Wow. You know, it's crazy because I, I mentioned to Eno that every year there are always breakout guys. And in the first set of mock drafts, you see that guy's name all of a sudden jump to the, the end of the first, the second, the third round. And you're shocked. You're like, oh, my God, people are drafting this guy this early. That's crazy. How silly. I mean, they're, they're, they're drafting him after a, a career season. He's way overvalued. And then the more mocks you see you get a lot more used to seeing the player's name that early, and you don't think it's that crazy anymore. And I think you're now setting me up to not be as shocked when I see Puig drafted you know, 11th and 12th overall in draft, because I'm feeling like that may happen, and I'm, I'm probably going to freak out when that happens. But I think you're preparing me a bit right now. Yeah, I mean, you look at it. He's got the power, obviously. Um, he's he is one of the fastest guys around, so he's got the steals. And, you know, but that he's helps. not a good base stealer, though. I mean, he's only 11 He's not. He's, no, he's not a good base stealer, but I do think, you know, they have Davey Lopes, who's probably the best first base coach around, and he's the exact... I'm a better base stealer, you know? I mean, 
and we've come up kind of the same issues a couple years ago, and now he's become a better base stealer. But the speed, I think, helps because you look at his bad up, it's 396. And I'm not going to sit here and say he's a true talent 396, but he's absolutely the kind of guy who will have a higher than average Babbitt just because of the balls that he can beat out that almost nobody can. And that's going to keep his batting average high. Yeah, and you know what? You called him a physical freak. And it's pretty amazing, actually, that he has decent speed because he's 6'3", 245. And you said he's a physical freak. Obviously, until he actually was called up by the Dodgers, I had never even seen what the guy looked like or at the plate. And then when I finally had the chance, you know, after he was hitting for so much power... I'm like, holy crap, this guy is freaking enormous. His arms are huge. And I'm like, oh, of course he's hitting for this much power. He's a huge guy. I mean, he's kind of like, uh, I mean, Cespedes is also very, he's probably bigger than Cespedes, actually. Would you say that? Well, and that's the concern. It's like he's running full speed in the outfield. Um, and he's, you know, basically an NFL linebacker and he's running full speed. And you've seen it a couple of times where Andre Theater is in center and he looks over like, I'm calling the ball off. Please don't run me over and kill me. And that that's what my concern is that that will happen. Yeah, I mean, looking at fan graphs, Cespedes is only 5'10", 210, whereas Puig is 6'3", 245. So, yeah, Puig is a lot bigger. I mean, Puig's huge. you got to assume that as he gets older, those steals are probably going to start to decline because he's like, freaking enormous out there like carlos lee except well i mean he's only he's only 22 i'm hoping he's got a couple more years before he turns into carlos lee no i know but 245 is a freaking big dude yeah yeah i I mean you're right i mean that's it shouldn't be his profile to be a speed guy and then you watch him run and it's just like there is no human there's no way that any human that big should be able to run that fast but he does yeah and, and again just seeing him at the plate sometimes that's all it takes for you to realize that a guy is for real and that it's not a surprise that he can possess the type of power that he does just based on his size alone. And like you said, he's not a very efficient base stealer at the moment, but you know what the speed helps him with is he's hitting first or second, usually ahead of Adrian Gonzalez and Hanley Ramirez. It gets on base and that's a lot of runs. I mean, he's got 63 runs in fewer than a hundred games already. You put that over a full season. That's a pretty good run scoring base. And it's funny because obviously this is not a guy who is a prototypical leadoff or number two hitter. I, you have to assume that he's going to be a middle-of-the-order hitter. Although, I mean, with the Dodgers lineup, they have a lot of middle-of-the-order hitters. So it's just a matter of how do you want to order them and who do you want to get the most at-bats. And I guess because he's got decent speed, they figure, all right, maybe he's probably more fitting of a, a leadoff spot than, like, a, obviously a, better than an Adrian Gonzalez or an Andre Ethier. Well, he gets on base, too. I mean, he's got a 400 on base percentage, and I know he's got a reputation as a bit of a hacker, but he's got a better walk rate than uh, Adrian Gonzalez or, or Carl Crawford does. Yeah, and that's actually improved because when he first called up, was called up, he didn't walk at all. He had a 3.7% walk rate in his first month, and that's almost improved every single month. And, and so that's a really good sign. He had one really bad strikeout month in July. He's gotten that under control. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, now he's he's getting to the point where nothing really looks that fluky. Obviously, the 396 BABIP is a little fluky, and I wouldn't say he's going to post another 21% home run fly ball ratio next year, but that isn't that off from what seems like might be his true talent. Uh, yeah, I mean, the balls he hits, I mean, if you get a chance to go look at the, the home run he hit in San Diego last night, it, I don't think it still has landed. Like, even the Padres beat writers were tweeting that they've never seen a ball hit that far in that stadium before. It's unbelievable the amount of power he has. All right, so, D. Gordon. 
He's a guy that's always intrigued me. I love the improvement that he showed this year at AAA, and yet he gets no opportunities whatsoever. It seems like he's just no longer in the Dodgers' plans. Have they given up on him, or is there still hope here for real life and fantasy value? Well, if they haven't given up on him, I sure have. <laughs> I, I think he's totally useless. I mean, here's the, this is not so much fantasy-related, but he cannot play shortstop. He is Well, that's very fantasy-related, because if he can't play defensively at shortstop, the only other spot really is, is second, or, or throw him into the outfield, because any other position, his offense won't be good enough to play there. Yeah, and he started playing second a little bit. I mean, they still think of him as a shortstop. He made a, a huge error the other night at shortstop, but he did play second base a little bit. He played a dozen or so games there uh, at AAA this year. But I, I don't know that their goal is to make him a full-time second baseman as much as it is to have him have a little more positional flexibility, you know, which is all fine and good. But if he can't hit and he can't hit, then it doesn't matter where he fields because he's not going to be a big leaguer, which it, it's disappointing because he's got that great speed, but I just cannot see him... Uh, having enough plate discipline to turn any of that into stolen bases because he's never on base. Well, I mean, he did show an improved walk rate at AAA and he, a decent strikeout rate. I don't see him being that much different than like a Billy Hamilton. I mean, obviously not as much speed as Billy Hamilton. Nobody does. But I, I just don't see that much differently. I don't understand why, if he can't cut it defensively at shortstop, why don't they just move him to second base and see if he can, keep, if he can cut it there and, and just make him a full-time second baseman? The team, they don't have a second baseman. What is Mark Ellis is their future? Obviously not. I don't think they have any real prospects there. No, they don't. Second base is a big hole for them. Um, and like I said, they're they're putting him there a little bit, but I, I don't know that it's really going to help. I mean, the big benefit of having him at shortstop is that he's so fast right and he's got great range and he can get to all of these balls um and he's got a strong arm but his arm is so inaccurate that you know having a strong inaccurate arm from second base i don't know that that really helps that much so it's great that they're trying but in the long run i just i don't see it happening i mean the the, the throws are shorter at second base and so that probably would benefit uh, a defensive player that doesn't have a, a very accurate arm because, you, you know, you don't have to throw as far. But I don't know. I, I don't see why it, it would hurt to move him to second base and, and see what happens defensively because if he's not good at shortstop, you know this. So what's going to happen? You might as well try him out at second. Worst thing that can happen is he doesn't cut it there too. The best thing is he's your future at second base where they don't even have anybody at the moment. You know, I think they're so down on him. It wouldn't surprise me if he gets traded. Because, you know, I think there's enough potential there for someone to give him a shot, but they've already done it a couple of times, and now they're trying to win World Series. And he needs to be on a team that's really not in a pennant race and can afford to give him a couple of months of time. So, you know, if they make any deals this, this winter to add another pitcher or, or, or maybe get a second baseman, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's included in that. All right, let's also talk about another Dodger that we've talked a lot about on the podcast. But once again, I'm curious about your thoughts on Matt Kemp where you're going to draft him next year and how you feel about his recovery from the myriad of injuries that he suffered this year. Plus he came back from shoulder surgery. That's obviously affected his power all season long as well. So can I just say that my, one of my main fantasy leagues, I mean, with, with Eno and Tommy Bennett and RJ Anderson and Mark Norman and all these guys, and going into the season, two of my uh, outfield keepers were Mike Trout, Mike Trout and Matt Kemp. And I'm like, I'm just going to destroy everybody. My outfield is going to be the best. And I ended up doing really well in the league, but not because of Matt Kemp. Because yeah. he was just the most useless all season long. So you tell um, you did not expect a five home run, nine stolen base season from Matt Kemp. You expected no, that? <laughs> not quite. I mean, I 
I expected that coming that shoulder surgery was was serious, and I did think it was going to affect him, but not like this. And then if you look at the way his season went, it's not just the shoulder. I mean, he hurt his hamstring, uh, he hurt his ankle. You know, he got hurt on his rehab. He's been hurt like three different times. Um, and if you look at the the day by day, he hurt his shoulder again in July. He comes back for one game. I think on the 21st and goes uh, four for four with a homer or something like that. And in that game sprains his ankle in the ninth inning and misses six weeks. Like he's, <laughs> he's cursed if such a thing uh, exists. Now he's finally back. You know, he's looked okay. It's only been, you know, three or four games, so it's hard to judge, but I, I think he is potentially a guy who will be a really, really nice value next year because now he'll be another year off of that shoulder surgery. Um, and he'll have horrible stats from this year, and he certainly isn't going to be a first-round pick. You know, so if you can get him in the middle rounds, there's still the potential for that guy who should have been the 2011 MVP in there. Do you really think he's going to last until the middle rounds? I mean, I have a feeling that he's going to go no later than the second round in every single draft because he still has the name value and he still has the upside. I mean, he's gone nearly 40-40 before, and there are going to be fantasy owners who aren't going to pass up that kind of upside sometime in the second round. I think I think he'll last past the second round. I, mean, I guess it depends on how many teams are in the league. Wow. But you, look, you look at how useless he was this year. I mean, that's, yeah. that's tough to get over. I, do you think that it's possible that that shoulder surgery basically saps his power for the remainder of his career? Now, I mean, if you look at his home run per fly ball ratios, they peaked in 2011 and 2012 also his isolated slugging, and, and those were basically the most out of character with the rest of his career. Before that, he was generally 200, sub-200 ISO, mid-teens home run per fly ball. So do you think that it would be prudent to basically project that level of power again, and it's probably not going to get back to his peak of the last two years coming off of that major shoulder surgery? I think if you look at, you know, not just this year, but last year was kind of a bust, too. I mean, he was killer in April, uh, and then he hurt his hamstring twice, and then he ran into the wall and hurt his shoulder. So it's really been two full years of being hurt. And I think, you know, if he's healthy, the power's still there. But, no, I, I can't say that I see him hitting 39 homers again or, or whatever he had in 2011. I think in 2020, yeah, I think he can totally do that. But, you know, step one is staying healthy, and that's a huge concern because it's basically him in two consecutive lost years. Yeah, and then the speed concerns because – in 2012, he only stole nine bases in 13 attempts. This year, the speed rebounded a bit, nine steals, no clots. And again, with all his leg injuries, you just wonder, plus he's obviously a year older, and we, we know that speed is the skill of the young. Is he going to be good for 20 to 30 steals next year? We don't know. I mean, to me, there are so many question marks that as tempting as it might be to take him in the second round, I just feel like it might be better to opt for somebody that's a little safer where you have a much better idea of what you're going to get. Well, I agree, and that's why I think that in, in many leagues he will last past the second round. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe it's possible in a handful of leagues, but I feel like there's got to be one person in your league that is salivating at that type of upside, and so it's going to be uh, the majority that he's going to go no later than the second, and, and maybe the odd league here and there. If you're lucky, maybe you can grab him sometime in the third or, or even later. If there are a bunch of Mike Petriello's and maybe Mike Podhors is in the league, then maybe. He'll ask. <laughs> Alright, let's talk about another non-Dodger and finish things up with Tanner Roark. Did you know it was pronounced Roark? You know, I heard uh, an announcer say that, and I honestly wasn't sure if he was wrong or if I was wrong, if it was Rourke or Roark. So if you say Roark, I'm going to go with you. Yeah, and again, I think that 
I talked about Roark with Eno, perhaps talking about streaming options. And this is a guy that has just continued to not give up any runs. And he's already had three starts. He's only allowed two runs over those three starts. And you published an article two days ago on Roark. And what are your feelings on him heading into next year? Is he even guaranteed a rotation spot? And is he a guy who might be considered a sleeper in like 12-team mixed leagues? You know, he's a guy I looked at because I felt like, you know, he's 7-0. He had the 1.08 year rate. There's a lot of talk about him, and he deserved a look just based on that alone. Um, and you know what I found about him is that he's an interesting guy, but you got to look at him in the right way. Like, toss out the 7-0 right away because four of those were relief pitcher wins where he picked up after a guy, a starter, he didn't go five innings. Um, so those are kind of useless. The three starts have been good, but the one thing that really stood out to me is that his, uh, the opposition he's faced has really been bad. I mean, he's facing the Marlins a couple of times, the Mets a couple of times. Yeah, even the Braves aren't that great on offense. That um, The Royals, I think. He hasn't really played, you know, other than St. Louis, maybe a really good offensive team. And that concerns me that the level of guys, especially with expanded September rosters, that he's getting out is not going to be the kind of guys he's going to see if he is in the rotation next year, which is not even a guarantee of because, you know, they still have a pretty stuffed rotation. Um, you know, he's good because he misses or he doesn't, give up a lot of walks. He doesn't hasn't have any homers so far. Strikes out enough to get by, but he's a he's a back end guy to me. I mean, I would I would draft him for a dollar to fill out my rotation, but I would let somebody else jump on the seven and zero record. Yeah, I mean he's a guy I wouldn't even bother with and, and that's pretty crazy. Zero percent home run for fly ball ratio in nearly forty two innings. Pretty impressive. I, the thing that concerns me the most is his swinging strike percentage is only six percent, which is pretty pathetic. And he still has basically a league average strikeout rate. And that's primarily because he's gotten a ton of looking strikes, uh, basically close to a league leading rate. And that's something that, yeah, I mean, it's kind of sustainable, not really to the degree of the swinging strike rate, but it's not something I want to put my faith in as, as continuing just getting called strikes. But you have to assume Clearly, he has underwhelming stuff, and he's just kind of fooling hitters, as maybe hitters are just looking for another pitch. And that's something that I feel like could end at any point, and he'll start to get rocked. And then you're betting on a guy, really, who's only above average skill is good control. And that's not really somebody that I really want on any of my fantasy teams. Yeah, when I see a guy make a big, big change in stats, I like to see that there's um, a, a quantifiable reason behind it. Like I learned a new pitch or, you know, I got in shape and lost 20 pounds or I'm on a new medication or whatever the case may be. And you will see it in last year in AAA. I don't have it in front of me, but he was something like, you know, four and 13 with a four and a half ERA or something like that for, for Syracuse, which is terrible. And now here he is pitching really well. And the only reason that, that I could find where he said that it changed is that he had a new mental outlook. Like he resolved not to let himself get worked up on the mound if his teammates made an error or something. Ah, uh, like that. that's it. Which, which is nice. I mean, that's all well and good, but I mean, come on, that's not enough to change your career around, you know? I'm just, I'm not buying it. He's, he's a nice guy, and it's it's great that he got to the big leagues. Uh, I just, I don't see him keeping it up. Man, you know, he should share that new mental outlook with Dan Harron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If that's all it took, I would be in the big leagues tomorrow. Yeah, seriously. All right, well, on that note, that's a wrap. So join us again on Tuesday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Mike Petriello, uh, Mike Podhorzer, thanks for tuning in.